0: Hello again. This is Rabbi Jeff Sachs of Atid and Webbishiva with another installment in our Jewish Educators Book Club. Today I'm talking by Skype hookup with uh, Rabbi Gil, Rabbi Doctor Gil Pearl, uh, about his recent book, The Pillar of Vilshin: Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin and the World of 19th Century Lithuanian Torah Scholarship. I'm speaking with. Um, with uh, Rabbi Pearl uh, by remote because I'm in Jerusalem and he is in remote Tennessee, uh, where he is, serves as the dean of the Margolin Hebrew Academy, also known as the Yeshiva of the South, and he's very involved on on the day-to-day. Uh, work of uh, of actual chinuch, of actual uh, teaching and, and educating, and uh, the book itself uh, deals with those topics in a slightly different way than I imagine uh, you know you do uh, uh, down there in uh, in the school so tell us a little bit about. Uh, about about this book, which I know emanated from your doctoral work at at Harvard, tell us a little bit about about the book, about the folks of the book, and while we're at it, to give us a few sentences about the Nitziv himself, who is after all the the central figure. He and his works are the central figures in uh, in the book.
1: Sure. Um. <clears throat> I guess my interest in the Nitziv started way back in in yeshiva, and uh, at that point it was really on his Perushan Chumash, HaMikdavar, which I think most of us have probably spent some time uh, at least dabbling with. And um, you know, the book really came from a uh, a feeling that I got when when reading HaMikdavar that there's that there's a cr- very very creative mind behind this work. And uh, a mind which must have been reading, must have been exposed to uh, to a, a, just a wide range of, of various sources, right? But but the text itself of Meggavar really doesn't give us any, any any real insight, and so that sort of began my journey to try and and, and uncover and discover you know who he was what. Primarily, his you know the intellectual um, influences on him were, and that sort of took me back in time to uh, what is his earliest work, his um,
0: youth, yeah, his, yeah
1: his, his parish on the Sifre, uh, and that that became the focus of my dissertation. That be- became the focus of of, of this book um, because I think it, it it offers a really unique insight into. His world as a young man, and um, perhaps most surprisingly, is that it sort of led to a uh, to a bigger picture, a bigger story about uh, the, the first half of the 19th century and what you know what I think is a very different world than what we often associate Thanks. with uh, with Lithuanian rabbinic
0: culture, with our, our kind of nostalgic take, our, our our skewed memory of what it must have been like. But this work, the Eimek Kanatsiv, which actually was not available for for a very long time, it, it was only, the manuscript was only released in, what, in the 1950s? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this work, which is a commentary on the Midrash Halakha, de Sifre, um, what is it and how, by by entering the world of this one particular early work, how do you see all of the, the influences and the outside reading and the Nitzivs, knowledge of and exposure to larger uh, circles and worlds of culture that we don't generally think of when we think of the, the world of illusion and the world of old? Um, well,
1: I guess the, the first question I had to ask myself was, why is he writing on Sifre? I mean, it's, you know, today, if you'd go into the yeshiva, I mean, you're, perhaps you would hear Something from Sifrei because you read it someplace else, you know, maybe in Rashi or someplace um, similar to that. But but to actually find people who are going kiseder through Sifrei, um, you know, c- certainly not what you're going to find in your mm-hmm. typical uh, typical base madrash. Um, but then again, you know, mo- at least most people know that that the Nitsiv also wrote on the Shiltos. Which also is not something which you would normally, right. uh, you right. know, study from, from beginning to end. The we wouldn't, percent. right? We we, we right. wouldn't. So that sort of, you know, it, um, began to spark these kinds of questions. And then, um, you know, as I as I began to you know, to delve more into it, I realized that this really was not this was not um, this was not strange for that world. This really was actually quite common. Um, you know, we know that, that the Vilna um, you know, had this broad interest and was read. You know, was 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 learning Yerushalmi. Was learning the Tefra, Mechilta, and you know, traditional historiography. Then, you know, often saw the Vilna Gon as as kind of unique in that in in terms of his breadth breadth within the within the Torah world. Um, but the more I looked into it, you know, the more I saw that this was really this was quite common for that world in, in the first half of the 19th century, before the real rise of the of the of the big yeshivot. And I think it was with the with the rise of the yeshivah that the curriculum, to some degree, became standardized, and the focus really became um, became on Gemara. But but in the first half of the 19th century. You know, it, it was quite common to be learning to be learning midrash halacha, in particular midrash agadah, midrash halachah. I mean, if you open up the standard version of um a, a, of, of your of midrash um, of your midrash Haggadah, you know, Breshit Rabbah, Shmot Rabbah, all of the commentary you're going to find around the page comes from the first half of the 19th century in Lithuania. Okay. So wasn't
0: this wasn't this one of the things that set the Yeshiva apart later in life when he headed the Yeshiva? Uh, again, the, the Netziv lived. You know, his dates span the 19th century. He dies in 1893, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, like and he, he had a, a pretty long life for for life expectancies in those days, at least. Um, but at the end of life, at the end of his life, when he's in Volozhin, he's he's giving these chumish shiurim that are wildly popular, very creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, one assumes it's the raw material that went into the Hamakdavar, mm-hmm. where you have. Uh, not literary analysis uh, the way we think of it today, but you have someone writing on Chumash with obvious literary sensibilities. He's obviously uh, speaking about the Chumash with one eye on the contemporary world that he lives in, the larger contemporary world that he lives in, um, and that's, Reflected between the lines, uh, and, and sometimes not between the lines, sometimes right there, uh, in the text on what he's doing. He's interested in exploring the, the personalities of the biblical characters in, in way which his contemporaries really weren't doing. And this set him apart both from his colleagues in the yeshiva and, um, and of course, you know, is, is partially why we remember him today and why the Hamak Davar, you know, is still a, a, uh, a significant, you know, if we were to limit our our bookshelf of commentaries on on Chumash to uh, only a few commentaries, uh, he would be there. and He'd be there, of course, right alongside the Ramban, who, although the Ramban lived uh, 600 650 years earlier, was actually uh, concerned with some very many of the same the same themes and issues and uh, and uh, concerns in his Torah commentary. So, you know, what, you know, tell us more about that. Why he, you know, how he, how he became the Nitziv. There are those famous stories, apocryphal, one assumes, uh, of uh, the Nitziv's uh, origins as a quite average student um, okay. and his rise above that. What's the back story on that?
1: I'm going to try and address both of those. Um, you know, I, I think you're, you're, you're correct that the, his continued interest in, um, in Chumash and his approach to the, you know, the, the way in which he looks at uh, the biblical text is quite different than what you'll find um, in most other places in the, in the second half of the 19th century. I think what, what begins to set him apart is that he takes many of the things that I think were much more common in the first half of the 19th century and uh, holds on to them. Into the second half of the nineteenth century, even with the rise of the of the vote. and that's really where he begins to stick out. Um, it's certainly in regard to his his breadth um, within the within the, the traditional Torah world, his breadth, his interest in Chumash, um, what, you know what he does with with midrash. Um, you know, I, I think that I'm not so sure that his. You know, I think that his keen sensitivity to, to language, to, you know, so, sort of the literary themes, I'm not sure how common even that was in the first half of the 19th century. He might have been kind of unique on that front also, but there certainly was much more attention to, to the wide canon of, of literature, um, to developing these, these types of ideas. You know, I, one, one of the chapters in my book talks about the, the role of the Magid. And I think it's just a that's a it's a whole you know institution of Lithuanian Jewish life that that we just isn't on a radar screen yet. It was a prominent prominent position. This was not a storyteller, right? That mean. The maggot of Vilna, a very important rabbinic figure and and it was a, and, and many of the larger towns had a, had a maggot and the maggot was somebody who who seems to have been well versed in in many many different areas and that was his job was to was to say things that were interesting you know and to engage people um, so I think there was much more of that um, in the first half of the nineteenth century. I think that sieiv carries that through to the second half you know in terms of this uh, the stories about him being of average intelligence, you know to some degree i I feel bad debunking that myth because I think it's a great
0: one. <laughs> yeah, uh, must be must be very useful to you as parents of certain school children come in to see the principal or the dean of the school. Exactly, it's been, I mean the story's
1: been used to encourage so many people, and that, that's such a wonderful thing. Um, but 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 I. I
0: roughly told it 's it's more or less the Shiva equivalent of the same chestnut that 's used about Einstein, who was a, a poor, not very promising student particularly in in mathematics and is, he was advised to you know maybe should better off to go become a shoemaker or whatever the equivalent was, and of course you know the guidance counselor got it wrong, and he rose to become Einstein or he rose to become the Nitziv.
1: right right so that the, the earliest source of that of that story comes. Um, you know, in, in, is from the Makor Baruch, but from Baruch Alevi Epstein, his, his nephew, uh, nephew and brother in law. Um, but, uh, but the Makor Baruch was, was significantly younger, um, than, than the Nizib, did not really, certainly did not know the Nizib in his youth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: and only, only knew him, you know, when he was considerably older. And o- most, most of what he writes in the Makar Baruch is, are things that he has heard, you know, secondhand, not things that he knew firsthand. Um but in, in terms of the, you trying to, to validate it, here's what we do know. What we do know is that he was writing his work, um on the Safray that it's incredibly scholarly work. Um, you know, and, and there were, there's mythology that goes along with that also, that, uh, you know, Revitzola didn't really realize what a wonderful Talmud he had until the Radal, you know, he saw communication from the Nitzib to the Radal, or he saw the Nitzib's work, Nitzib sending to Radal his work on the Sifrei, but, um, you know, but just lo- just thinking about it logically. I mean, if, if you were Rav Itzola, you know, son of Rav Chaim, you know, R- Rosh know, the largest Shishio sh- in the world, w- would you choose a Shlamazel you know, to marry your daughter at the age of 13? I mean, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. You, you just, right. you wouldn't do that. And not only that, but, but we also know that, that Mac- Max Lilienthal is writing already in the, in the, in the 1850s and completely, you know, Messiah Lefitumo, um, Notes is, is is writing. He'd already come to the United States at that point, but he's writing about his, his traveling through, um, through Lithuania on, on behalf of Tsar Nicholas and uh, is in with, um, in Vilasen, and he refers to having met uh, somebody he calls his son-in-law, Rav Leibola, who uh, he thought was about thirty at the time, but he was actually right. younger. He was probably twenty about twenty-five, which we call is one of the most celebrated Talmudists in all of Russia.
0: Right. You know, so either that is, is the native.
1: That's the native, right? Right. um Nafhtali Tzvi Rehershleb, and that—that's right. That's the native. Um, you know, so either he went from being a Slamozl at age thirteen to one of the greatest communists in all of Russia. You know, in his early twenties. Yes,
0: the assessment was uh, was off the mark. Right uh let me ask you um it, the book the book itself the book itself a large part of it and one presumes the the doctorate even more so deals with the kinds of academic textual questions of uh, establishing the the manuscript of this work this comment this early commentary on the sefer uh one one presumes that uh you know although uh in in the work is published uh some of that's been been taken out. That that work of of finding this manuscript and uh, you know how, how was the, how was this manuscript? What is what's the story of the manuscript and how it came back? And then your involvement in the establishing, I guess, the correct uh, versions of the manuscript and
1: yeah. It's actually much more interesting than, than some people might think. Um, <clears throat>
0: <laughs> All scholars think their work is fascinating.
1: <laughs> that's true.
0: The, the guy that, the guy that's, you know, writing the doctorate now on, you know, the Nova Scotia salmon harvest of May 1853, you know, <laughs> he'll tell you everything about every piece of herring.
1: Right. Um, so the, the, the story of the manuscript – it really starts, and, and I owe a lot in this regard to um, Dr. Chaim um who I only had the pleasure of studying with for one semester, but those who uh, who have studied with him mm. know that one of the things he ramped into early on is that uh, that – um, one of the first questions you have to ask yourself when you open a book is, is what's printed on these pages, you know, what it purports to be, in his words, um, and and that really is the first question I have to ask when I opened this this printed work called Amakhanasib. Kind of, as you pointed out, this was only printed years after, I mean, almost a century after it was after it was complete. So how do we know? You know that what's what's within the the binding of this book is actually what Anitzev wrote, and uh, you know. Furthermore, especially in this printing, there when you start flipping through pages and you see that there were parentheses, um, you have to ask yourself, well, what are those? You know, did he put those in there? Did somebody else put them in there? You know, so why? Um, so that was that was what I set off to see, and and because you know my my work. What I found in Aimee, kind of Karnasiv was this treasure chest of, uh, of, you know, things he was quoting that I never expected
0: you know, to see in writing.
1: Uh, you know, it made all, all the more so I, I needed to find the actual, his actual handwriting and his actual, you know, text to see if, to, to validate that this, in fact, is what the Natsiv had written. Um, and uh, so that that took me, the, the story is that uh, I was teaching at Yeshiva University at the time, and I was talking to Rabbi Khalap who is actually a distant mishpacha with family of the Nitzv. Right. And uh, he was able to introduce me to somebody who is now a Rosh kollel in Meish um, in, uh, Arim and who is a part of the Shapiro family. paul Shapiro is the son-in-law okay. of the, of the Nitzv, and uh, his family is the family that has um all the manuscripts of of this uh-huh. work. And so he was able to make the introduction for me and uh arrange that I could actually go to Israel and I was going to meet with them to to see text in uh you know live. Um and I had made this big trip. I was gonna go for a week and just try and sit there all day, you know, working with his manuscript. And um unfortunately they had other plans for me. <clears throat> you know by the time i i got there the first time and they they really didn't understand. and i don't know if they didn't understand what it was i was looking for or they were extremely um skeptical. skeptical cautious uh scared of what it was i had intended with this uh with this manuscript and so what happened was they sat me down at a the table there were two of them it was him and his uncle and they sat me down at a table and they said what do you want to see? and i would have to tell them you know a particular you know particular uh, passage that I wanted to see, and they would turn to it, they would look at it themselves first, and if it was okay, they would give it to me and let let me look at it.
0: Uh
1: And, you know, I I, I tried telling them this was just not, I wasn't going to get anywhere this way. You know, there was so much I needed to check, um, but they would not let me sit there and just leaf through it. Um, And uh, at a certain point, I realized that they were looking for things in the manuscript. It seemed to me that there were things that they did not want me to see. Right. Um, so at a certain point, I, I, once I got, I was hip to their groove, so I started asking to see something that was like, a, you know, a passage before what I actually wanted to see so that I could scan down on the, on, on the, on the page and actually see what I wanted to see. Um, and so, for example, you know, one of the things I wanted to make sure was in there was a, a reference to, uh, to Mendelssohn. You know, where Nitzsche is, right. is citing Mendelssohn, and um, I—it's it, underlined in the manuscript in pink. Um, now, who did that? Someone. someone has flagged it as exactly. Um, and uh, um, but but nonetheless, you know, I was—it was it, it an was experience. It's amazing to see his writing because you see his. Um, <clears throat> You know, you, you see times where he where he's written, you know, uli, and then he comes back and and, cro- and crosses it out and writes bivadai. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you just see his mind at work and the way that the that that the text progressed through you know through through the years. Um, but it, but it does. It, it was absolutely a critical, a critical piece of trying to, to establish that this really is his, um you know, how it was written. It was written over the course of, of time. Um, and then it, you know, unfortunately though, it's sitting somewhere in, uh, actually I think it was Gula, not Meisharim. Um it's sitting on a shelf and rotting, unfortunately. But, uh, uh. maybe one day we'll get it to uh. where the rest of us can use it.
0: So let, let me ask you a different question, not so much related to the work itself, but to to you as the as the author of the work. You're someone obviously who is well trained in the academic disciplines. Who at one point was uh, on a career path towards the academy, towards university te- ser- teaching and research. And today, uh, although obviously still involved in uh, in Jewish learning uh, writ large, uh, you're very much involved in the day to day work of educating school children. And that's of course something that the himself is also was also uh, interested in. But it's a it's a it's a far cry from the kind of uh, you know academic work of somebody doing this kind of manuscript analysis and uh, and historical research. H- how do you, how do you relate to these different components of your professional life, of your of your personality? Uh, how does how does your your academic training uh, shape and f- influence your work as a pedagogue and as a as an educational leader on a day to day basis at the school that you head? Question. <laughs> um.
1: Let's see. Let's maybe we'll tackle that from two different standpoints. Both from the so the larger academic training and the specifics of you know where I, what I focused on. Um, you know, from a, from the larger perspective of uh, you know my academic training. So you know, I, I think academic training teaches you to ask questions, um, and uh, and I think that's uh, that's the most valuable skill, no matter where you're going. Um, you know, it, it it makes you a learner, and that's really the the approach that I've taken to education, because as you said, it was really not, um, there really hadn't been the focus of my of my training, you know, when I was when I was younger. And um, but I I, I approached it the same way. I said, well, what, what, what can I get my hands on? What can I read? What questions can I ask? And uh, and you know, to what degree can I put my own stamp on this? To what degree, you know, I'm not afraid to to look at something that somebody else has written and, and, and take the parts that i think are really great and and, and ask some serious questions on the parts that i parts that i think uh um perhaps are not so and uh and and I, and there's no question to me that that comes from you know from the, the sensitivities and from what i was encouraged to do as yeah. a as a doctoral student <clears throat> um you know i think that it has given me um insight into you know the academic endeavor in in general which you know it it taught me what rigor looks like um it's taught me to think and and a lot of what we are focusing on here in our school is also giving over those skills those skills to think especially as we look forward to where education is going um you know, there's so much information out there, and we recognize that our kids are not going to master all of it and that what is becoming more and more important is, their, is what they can do with it, is the degree to which they can synthesize information. Mm-hmm. Take large pieces and make something out of it, to what degree can they ask questions about the validity of the information that they're in, that, that, that they 're encountering and, and these are the questions of, of the academic process you know but, it's, it's, well, it's, interestingly, they
0: are also the questions <laughs> of the netiv <Nizif> himself <laughs> there 's no
1: question about it <laughs> it really it really is uh, um, and, and, to, and and I guess to add on to that the other thing that the Natsiv in particular has done is is Provided a role model in the sense of the ability to be very much um, entrenched in the traditional world with, with, you know, no questions asked, but yet find a space within the traditional world for true creativity, for, you know, for looking at things perhaps differently, for having the confidence to say something that nobody has said before, to, to read it differently. And, and I think
0: that's so um, it's so important. It's so important for us and so important for our kids. And to be afraid of the, the wider bookshelf, uh, to be, not to be afraid of the outside bookshelf.
1: Correct. Now,
0: now to be fair,
1: though, I, I do think that Natsiv is an older man. You Natsiv know, is Rosh Hashiva does. I don't think he becomes afraid of it himself. But I do, my sense is that he shies away from encouraging, right. um, you yeah. know, his students, by, you know, by the second half of the 19th century to be, as open with a bookshelf as, as he yeah. was as a as, as a young man um, but okay. but then again, then we have to ask ourselves you know he saw in the second half of the nineteenth century a real threat he saw a threat to you know traditional society um, and, you know, as in the same way that Chassam Sofer did you know a few a few decades before that you know, but I think we have to ask ourselves is that is that our threat today you know is is, is that is that the world that we live in, or very
0: different challenges
1: exactly exactly. Um, you know, perhaps our, 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 you know, we we have we have more we stand more to lose if we if we don't find ways of encouraging our kids to be to be creative and to be unafraid uh, to to engage and and I think that's certainly the way I approach it and the way I trying to encourage our kids.
0: Okay, well, all of these topics are addressed both uh, in the chapters and and between the lines of the Pillar of Illusion by Rabbi Dr. Gil S. Pearl. Uh, published recently by the uh, Academic Studies Press, uh, available, one presumes, on Amazon.com and yes, in bookstores near you. Although probably on Amazon.com, uh, it's a it's a really very interesting read about uh, uh, a truly truly uh, giant figure. In the history of Jewish ideas, in the history of uh, of Bible commentary, in the history of Jewish educational leadership, um, and it, uh, it, it it opens up a, a chapter in his life that uh, little light had been shed on uh, until now. So, those of us involved in both in academic scholarship as well as in the hard work of actually educating children, uh, the book has something to offer to uh, to everyone. Thank you, Rabbi Pearl. Thank you. And since we're talking about books from Volosian, I have the great pleasure to add another conversation with another author, or in this case, a translator, annotator, uh, Rabbi Eliezer Lipa Leonard uh, Moskowitz, who's... The Soul of Life, the complete Nefesh Hayim, has recently been, uh, recently been published and is available on Amazon.com. And it is, believe it or not, I was actually surprised to discover, is the, is the first full translation of Rabbi Chaim Volozhner's monumental Nefesh Hayim. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz, just for the listeners, give us in a few sentences, Introduce us to the Nefesh HaKhayim, that great manifesto of Torah study and the yeshiva worldview.
2: Well, the Nefesh HaKhayim was Reb Chayim of Valojin's masterwork. Reb Chaim of that besides being a posseh and the founder of the modern yeshiva movement, was an, an intensely interesting person in the range of his, the, of his Torah knowledge. So while he was a, a posseh, and uh, the, the Russian yeshiva that we know of as primarily being involved with halacha and, and shas uh, was also a tremendous mekubal, uh, the primary student of the Vilna Gaon. And in his uh, Nefesh Hayim, he had to deal with the issues that were facing the Jewish community of his time, and that includes the, the rise of Hasidism. And uh, uh, his response to it was to write this book, Nefesh Yehayim which uh, addressed uh, four major themes. One, which which is the nature of man's soul and our our relationship uh, to the the, the Rebota Shalom, to God uh, in the scheme of creation. And the second was uh, the nature of tefillah, of prayer. The third is uh, God's manifestation into the world. And the fourth is the nature of Torah.
0: And that fourth section, the fourth Sha'ar, is is probably the most well known, or or uh, most you know the, the one with with which uh, people are most widely familiar, because it's there that he develops his ideas of Torah lishma, that Torah study for its own sake, which has so influenced uh, contemporary Jewish learning and and Jewish education uh, uh, in in ways that it's it's almost hard to. It's almost hard to understand. How do you see the impact of the Nefesh Achayim, this, you know, important late 18th century work, and its bearing on life of Torah study and yeshiva learning in the 21st century?
2: Well, if, if you go into the yeshiva world these days, and you you ask them what they study in the Nefesh Achayim, it's almost always Shara Ravii, which is, as you said, Torah Uh But the Reb Chaim... Uh, Developed the idea of Torah Lishma in the in the first three Sha'arim and in the Parashim, and uh, uh, without those parts of the Netzachayim, it's difficult to understand where Torah Lishma comes from. So uh, while the Yeshiva world concentrates on the idea of Torah Lishma, it doesn't really understand where it came from unless you unless you look into the first three Sh'arim of the Netzachayim mm-hmm. and. The reason it hadn't been published in English, by the way, it hadn't been published in French uh, completely.
0: Uh Ah, that's interesting.
2: It is, yeah, with uh, uh, the grateful us for Lebanon's doing a forward to it.
0: Uh Ah, Um, there's an interesting, uh, I guess a little interesting uh, a fact or anecdote about your own involvement in this. Uh, you are, as, as the biography in the book uh, tells us, you are now finishing the Smicha program at Yeshiva University, uh, but you are not in fact a contemporary with most of your fellow students. You've returned to the halls of Yeshiva after a life in uh, in, in the world of uh, engineering and, and, and other things, um, So why don't you just tell us a little bit about your own connection to the book and how you came to it and what it's meant to you and how you've come back to it uh, now at this point in your life as you've returned to more formal yeshiva learning and then how you've come to make the translation.
2: Um, I will. So uh, a little bit of personal background, Uh, as an adult I I spent 20 plus years in engineering uh, in the aerospace defense world as an engineer, systems engineer, and as a uh, head of the research and development department, uh, and then I started my own business, And uh, but back in in the days when, when I was growing up, when I was much younger, I went to the Yeshiva day school movement here in the United States, and through high school, I had really great uh Rebbe Sorrel Chase, and lead uh but I came out of the Yeshiva day school system uh, really knowing uh, my place in Torah, and why I should be and so I spent some years, uh, looking for an answer to that. And mm-hmm. I'm fortunate uh, that Ribonah Shalom brought me good, good teachers. And, uh, I came to understand what my place in Torah is. And the Nefesh HaChaim was, uh, was seminal in, in finding my place. Because the Nefesh HaChaim, uh, explained some of the basics. And as, uh, Rev uh, who was the, the second Rosh Shiva at, at Yeshivat,
0: uh,
2: says in his forward to the Nefesh HaChaim, uh, Rav Chaim wrote the book for two reasons. One was to benefit the average everyday uh, Jew, give him uh, some background in uh, very very important uh, subjects, but also to provide an entry to uh, the world of Torah Hanistar, Torah what we call uh, the Kabbalah today. And uh, it was there where I found my my, my makom Torah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, now that you've returned to uh, returned to yeshiva. Uh, You've now tried to to bring it to all of us with the the really very interesting translation. Uh, The translation itself, I should should mention, it's it's quite a hefty book, including the the, the appendixed Hebrew text of the work. The original Nefesh HaChayim is appendix to the work in in Hebrew, although it's not a a side-by-side translation. Uh, The volume weighs in at almost 650 pages, and it's replete with your uh annotations, your, your sources, your footnotes, what, what are you trying to do below the line? What are you trying to do for the reader with, uh, with the, the notes and marginalia that you add?
2: Um, a, a couple of things. One is that <clears throat> Rav uh, style of writing is a little uh, unfamiliar to us today. Uh, some of his uh, sentence structures, paragraph structures are, are difficult to parse, dif- difficult to understand. And so uh, I tried to uh, break things up and to explain the pieces that, to our modern ears, uh, wouldn't wouldn't make sense. Most part of it, and the other is that uh, many of the concepts that he presents are very difficult to understand without uh, a good background in his sources. So part of the task of being a translator here was going to each and every one of Rambam's sources and seeing exactly what he was trying to say, and to do my best to bring that to the reader, you know, what, that uh, he could understand.
0: Uh, okay. Well, again, the work is The Soul of Life, the complete Nefesh Hayim, which is the first complete translation of the Nefesh Hayim. but it's, it's a bit more than just a translation. Uh, the author, of course, is uh, Rav Chaim Voloshner, but the translator with whom we've been speaking is Rabbi Len Muskwitz. The book is available on Amazon.com, and it will open up uh, for both students of Torah and for all people that are interested in the role that Torah study plays in Jewish life. Uh, it will open up this seminal work, this monumental work, uh, to those who might otherwise have trouble accessing it in the original. So it's a great service to the community of uh, Torah, Torah scholars and those of us that are involved in, uh, in Torah teaching. Thank you Rabbi Moskowitz. Thank
2: you Rob Sachs, it was
1: a pleasure.